And the most important thing is actually to have the right structure set up in the first place to help you grow that portfolio. I'm George Markoski and welcome to the Positive Property Show. Our mission is to empower 10,000 people to create financial freedom through property using the Markoski method. Join us. Hey, Christina, thanks for having me. Uh, excited to, uh, to do a really good show tonight. Fantastic. Awesome, guys. If you're tuning in and you've just joined us, we've got David here tonight. Now, David is our mortgage manager that has joined our circle of safety here at Positive Property. And David's going to be talking about some really important things in regards to investing and how to get the best loans, you know, how to set yourself up for success moving forward as an investor. If you want to grow your portfolio, there's some really important fundamentals that you need to know in regards to, you know, which loans you choose, which banks you go through. So we're going to be talking about everything tonight. Now, if you're joining us live, just type in the chat, hashtag live, let me know that you're live, let me know that you can see me, you can hear me, receiving us loud and clear. Or if you're catching us on a replay, just drop a hashtag replay. Beautiful. All righty, guys. So, David, you're the expert when it comes to finance, everything finance in regards to investing in property. Tell us a little bit about yourself, I guess, and uh, when you first got into doing loans and, and how that sort of came about for you. Yeah, sure. So I've been a, a mortgage broker and own my own financial company for about 10 years now. I've um, been in the broking space. Uh, I started my journey uh, as, a, as a young person wanting to invest in property um, and sort of dealt with a number of mortgage brokers in the past and, and felt that I could probably do a better job at helping educate people go, follow the same path that I have. And so that's sort of how I sort of got into the industry. Um, and over the years, we've helped you know thousands of clients, uh, predominantly investors, really, because that's our target market to help them firstly get into their first investment property and then obviously help them build their portfolio over time. Um, so it's, it's a great journey to take people on and, and show them what it is that they can actually achieve. Yeah, nice. Fantastic. Got a little bit of feedback coming in um, from your side, David. I don't know if that's me coming through your phone or your screen there. I've just been told by one of our, our listeners. Sorry about that. That's don't, okay. Hopefully it resolves. Yeah, we'll keep going anyway. So that's all good. But... I think the most important thing we can sort of discuss is, look, fixed versus variable. It's a question I always get asked. Everyone wants to know the pros and cons. What are the benefits of going fixed? What are the benefits of going variable? I mean, me personally, I love going variable because if the market drops, interest rates go down, that means I've got the ability to then get the lower interest rate. And what I find is that nine times out of ten, whenever you fix an interest rate, always like interest rates go down and then you're left and you sort of <laughs> and the bank's making all this money and you're paying a higher interest rate. So it's like, oh, it's frustrating. Yes, yeah, 100%. It always seems to happen. There's always that one client. So obviously that's you, Christina, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky one because, you know, and there's probably no simple response as there's just a range of different factors that we really do consider when it's fixed versus variable. Um, at the moment, rates are at all-time lows for both, um, you know, home loans and investment lending. Um, and so what I like to do is really sort of apply an approach that really has a mixture of both and you really benefit of getting the best of both worlds. So, you know, if it's for a home loan or an owner-occupied mortgage, um, then we're predominantly doing a lot of 
fixed rates because the rates are really cheap, but we're then pairing that with a variable rate component with offset accounts and, um, and all the features that you want to facilitate paying your loan down faster. Um, however, if it's for investment, really at the moment we're finding a lot of clients are wanting to go fixed. And that's purely on the basis that uh, investment fixed rates are significantly cheaper than the variable counterpart. Um, and most people's strategy when it comes to debt repayment for an investment is that they either just want to pay the minimum amount or they want to pay interest only. And so a fixed rate really you know, minimises your repayments moving forward and helps you from a cash flow perspective. So there's, there's probably no right or wrong answer when it comes to that. It's uh, never black and white, is no, it? No, no. It's a case of weighing no. up what no. is the best for your specific situation. Yes. And I think, you know, when you're looking at variable versus fixed, you've got to weigh up if you're actually in the accumulation phase of growing your portfolio because if you are adding and you want to get another two or three properties in the same year, yeah. would you then potentially go variable to look at using equity from your investment properties? Yeah, that's certainly something you can do. Um, I guess the other thing you could look to do is if you do generate equity and you've got a fixed rate mortgage against that property, you could always create an additional mortgage split um, and keep your fixed rate component and then create a variable rate component to use that equity and buy your next investment property moving forward. So I think that's a great idea because then you get the best of both worlds. Correct. Then correct. you get, you know, the benefits of the fixed, the lower interest rate, but then you're not quarantining your equity and locking it in so that you can't then use that and leverage that because being able to leverage that is just so powerful in terms of wealth creation. 100%, exactly right. And and you do look, I guess you do get the best of both worlds, um, you know, by having that sort of combination of fixed and variable rates. Uh, so if you've got some surplus funds or cash flow that you're building up for your next property, you can put that in an offset account and save some some uh, mortgage repayments on those current properties. And then when you find that property, you've got that um, deposit ready to go for your next investment. So uh, yeah, it's really important to have a, a mixture of both, I think, in the current environment. Absolutely. And I think it also depends on a range of factors, including what interest rates you are comparing, obviously, you know, which banks you're going through, if you're going full doc, low doc. I mean, and we're going to discuss everything tonight. So you're going to get the low down. You're going to get the inside scoop here tonight on how to successfully grow your property portfolio and get the best combination of how to get the right loans. Which is awesome. So if we're talking about an owner-occupier, what would you be looking at doing in terms of, you know, fixed versus variable in order to access equity to invest? Yeah, sure. So what, what I've been doing at the moment is we would we would look at their existing mortgage that they've got. And, and let's just use an example that they've got a house worth a million dollars um, and a debt of 500000 um, what we would then take into account is maybe how much money they've got in savings and offset accounts. And so let's say this client has $100,000 available. So what we might look at doing is saying, let's lock away, you know, the majority of your loan at a fixed rate, say $400,000, and then we'll keep $100,000 variable where we can apply that offset money and make that money work for them in reducing their debt. And then we could create an additional component, which could be their equity that they can use for their next investment property, or maybe it's their first investment property. So we will then create a, a third facility that would sort of um, house that money for them moving forward. And again, we put another offset account attached to that, and then they can draw on that money as they find suitable properties for their portfolio. So the most important aspect of that is 
while that equity account has been set up and they're not using it, it's not costing them anything to hold that month, uh, hold that um, loan open. So that's a really important aspect of, of what we do in the loan structure phase because it sets you up for having that deposit ready to go. But if you're not using that money, you're not paying for it. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing to, to recognise. And getting familiar and using offset accounts to their full potential is something that people need to really understand. So when it comes to, I guess, the overall structure of getting investment property, would you say as a bit of a rule of thumb, you always want to try and have either an offset account or a redraw facility? 100%. I mean, I think an offset account is obviously the primary um, account that we like to use, but not all banks and institutions um, offer those. So if we don't have an offset account that we can use, then we would substitute that with a redraw facility. And it very much acts in a similar way. Um, it's maybe just not quite as accessible when it comes to using those funds. Yeah, absolutely. But it's still obviously better than having nothing attached to it. Yeah, and the most important thing is actually to have the right structure set up in the first place to help you grow that portfolio. So, you know, traditionally when we see a client for the first time, we really want to maximise that equity facility against any value that they've got now so that that can create, you know, opportunities for one, two, three, four or five properties or even more moving forward. Yeah, and you never want to, like, block yourself as in, you know, quarantining your your equity essentially you want to have that freed up and and do the appropriate measures like your equity withdrawals when you are in that accumulation and growth phase yeah correct exactly right so what would be i guess the the roadblocks that you do see people run into when it comes to growing their property portfolios Look, uh, certainly the, the first one is equity. I suppose, you know, if you don't have sufficient equity in an existing property or, or cash flow to contribute, then you don't have a deposit to get into that first property. So without the equity or without a significant deposit, it's really hard to get into that first property. Um, once you start to get into that accumulation phase, the process actually becomes easier because as we've all seen over the last number of years and, and throughout history in, the, in this country, property prices continue to double every seven to 10 years. And so, you know, after two or three years with a particular property, we might be able to access some equity, which will come for another deposit for the next property. So as people move through their journey and they accumulate more assets, um, that gives more flexibility and more opportunity to, I guess, access that equity and, and build their portfolio even further. Um, I guess the biggest roadblock then comes is once you get to a certain point with a particular bank or lender, you really need to diversify your lending strategy to a range of other banks and financial institutions that might lend you more money than your existing financier. So it's really important to have the right structure and setup and also have an understanding as to how banks and lenders um, assess your ability to borrow money. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. So... I guess that brings me to my next point. Like, would you look at um, doing interest only or principal and interest? <laughs> and I guess if you could give me a few scenarios yeah. of where it might be better to go, like, interest only versus principal and interest. I mean, generally I find going interest only for investments is the way you want to go for cash flow purposes mm -hmm. because that means uh, from a cash flow perspective, you've got a lot more money coming in that you can then put in your offset account, which offsets your loans. 
And there's probably only one scenario where I would use a P&I loan, and that would be for my principal place of residence in the house I'm actually living in, which I would consider, you know, my bad debt. Yes. Uh, so I want to get the lowest interest rate possible and pay off that principal to, I guess, free up more equity to then leverage into more investments. Sure. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And again, of course, it depends on everyone's um, personal circumstances and situation. So I would I would agree with you that if you're getting into your first investment or second investment property, that interest only should always be the, the primary method of repayment. Um, guarantees um, a lower repayment, helps you build up some additional cash flow through the rental that's coming through. And as you said, you can use that for um, you know, future deposits for, for properties two, three and four. Um, the only reason why you might not go interest only is if you don't have any debt owing on your principal place of residence. So if you don't have any bad debt anymore and you're looking to accumulate property um, moving forward, then why not utilise some additional cash flow to pay the debt down on an investment and then that will fast track your ability to extract some more equity moving forward and, and help you buy more property. Um, Yes, it means that you end up making additional repayments. However, given how low interest rates are at the moment and given how good rental yields and rental returns are, we're certainly seeing with a lot of our clients that those that are paying principal and interest are actually still having the majority of their mortgage covered by their tenants um, because rates are so low. Uh, so there's certainly a good opportunity to, to mix and match, um, but it really does come down to your personal situation, I suppose. It does, 100%, because I've seen um, members who have, you know, been able to free up a lot of serviceability and in layman's terms, you know, be able to borrow more money from the bank to yep. grow the property portfolio by getting investment properties with a P&I loan, even though ideally they really want to go interest only for cash flow, yep. but they're able to borrow more money to get their next property after that one because they have gone the route of the P&I loan. Yeah. And I would say, look, doing a cash flow calculator and you've got the investment property, do a cash flow calculator on a principal and interest and then compare it to an interest only, but also compare how much more money the bank will lend you if it's, you know, substantially more to get your next property after that because now we're thinking strategy. You know, we're not just here to look at the one investment. We're here to help you get to potentially 10 if that's your goal. Yeah. I don't know what your personal goal is. <laughs> it's funny, I was talking to a member today and, and he was sort of saying, oh, well, what's your goal? You know, how many companies do you want? And I said, my goal, and this might sound crazy, is 40 before 40 or 40 by 40. Wow. Wow. Because I really want to, you know, have that goal and have a massive goal uh, to invest in and create an amazing, you know, passive income. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, look, I'll probably have to do some of my loans P&I to free up serviceability. Hopefully not. I mean, if I had a magic wand that I could wave, I'd do all of my loans, principal and interest, and all yes. of them variable. Yeah. <laughs> that black and white guys and, and that's what I think we're here to discuss you know there's so many nuances when it comes to investing and understanding the ins and outs of it that's why you really need a circle of safety like David here to help walk you through and guide you through the best path to be able to maximize your specific situation and it is such a case-by-case -case scenario of where you know you will need to compare what's going to give you essentially the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to your goals and what you do want to achieve. 
Yeah, and look, we've certainly seen a, a range of different examples over the last five or ten years where it's worked that the, the, the structure of an interest only has worked really well for a client and then a principal and interest structure has worked in a, in a very effective manner as well. The one thing I'd probably say about the difference between P&I and interest only is that if you go five years interest only on your 30-year mortgage, once you get to that end of the five-year term, you then need to pay the rest of the debt down off in a significantly shorter period of time. And sometimes life gets in the way and circumstances change and you might not be able to refinance that debt. Um, and so if you, you end up you end up paying a significantly higher repayment over the rest of that mortgage until you can refinance and maybe re-extend that interest only with a different lender. So it's, it's really about having, a, as you said, a balanced portfolio and a balanced structure and strategy so that you can cross these bridges when they come. Absolutely, because, look, investing's not easy. Put it this way, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it right. Right, right. <laughs> and there are challenges along the way, but that's why it's important to have the right team to help you navigate that. And, you know, it's one of those age-old questions, um, interest only versus, you know, principal and interest, variable versus fixed. Uh, we need to figure out what's the right move here. Yeah. So and it's, I, guess, I was going to say, especially with, you know, when, when people are predominantly buying new properties that are getting fantastic levels of depreciation and gearing as well, you know, a lot of clients adopt strategies through their accountants and their income tax return where they can do tax variations, which put money back in their pocket on a weekly basis from their pay. And so that can cover any potential shortfalls that they might have by paying principal and interest as well. So there's, there's so many different things that you can do to really tailor your solution to make it work for you and obviously that's what we're here to help out with yeah 100 that's a really good point and you know when you are in that growth phase you really do need to be thinking you know about your second third even your fourth investment property you need to have that future projection out of okay if this is what i'm doing right now how is that going to look when I get onto my second property and then the third one, then the fourth one, and really get a plan right now to be able yeah. to do what you need to do? And, and the final thing I'd say about that, and that, that's a really good point, is that um, you can actually easily convert from interest only to principal and interest if you choose to do so, but going the other way is a very difficult thing because it requires a reassessment from a, uh, from a bank or a credit um, officer. So if you set something up interest only and then you decide that based on your cash flow, you're comfortable making the additional payments, it's a really simple process to switch to P&I. Um, how, how Doesn't surprise me, David, because the bank wants you to go. Correct, principal. correct. But if you, but if you, but if you think straight off the bat, oh, okay, I'm going to go principal and interest. I want to reduce the debt, but then you find out six months later that you you don't have that spare cash flow that you really thought you were going to. Then going back to interest only becomes a, a whole a whole can of worms, I suppose, to to try and fix that up. So it's important to get it right in the first place. But there's always a solution, um, you know, to fix the remedy if we need to. Yeah, 100%. That's good to know. And I get asked this question a lot. Um, so anyone who's getting like an interest-only loan for their investment, they're like, oh, but it expires in, you know, two or three years. Yeah. And to that I'm like, well, wouldn't you just refinance and get another interest-only loan? Because you want to keep growing your portfolio anyway, so you're going to have to refinance to do equity withdrawals. Yeah. You might as well just do that and refinance and go another fresh interest only 
Yeah, 100%. As, as long as that option is there and, and obviously what we find, we found in some circumstances when the, the property market becomes a bit of a lull, that valuations maybe don't increase as much as we would like and then people's ability to refinance becomes a little bit more difficult. So you can certainly reapply for interest only within your existing lender. You don't have to refinance to do that. Um, it might just involve them confirming that you're still in an ability to, to borrow that money with that particular bank. So it's certainly can be done without having to refinance. But yeah, you're right, Christina, if, if there's an option to really extract that value and equity and go on to property, uh, the next investment, then that's certainly a strategy to take. Yeah, beautiful. We've just had a question for you, David. Is it best to get a pre-approval before getting an investment property or should I wait until I find a property and then apply for the loan? Yeah, look, this is a, this is a really good question. Um, I would always try and get at least a, a pre-approval in place so that we know that moving forward, you've got confidence that you're going to be able to complete the transaction. Um, the market's really hot at the moment. I think we've all experienced that. And so sometimes it's hard to have a, have a vendor wait for you to get that pre-approval in place before sort of going unconditional on a contract. But um, if, we, if we build in the time and we build in the process to set, set you up so that you know exactly how much you can borrow um, and we have confidence in that, then that's just going to be the best for, for everyone um, from an outcome point of view. Yeah, fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. Let's see if I've got any more questions here. Um, okay. This one. So can you access the passive income if you set up through your super? I'd say that's more a question for an SMSF person, but David, I'll let you have a crack. Um, access passive income if you set up, so passive income through property if you've done it through your self-managed super fund? Yeah, I think that's what they mean. Yeah, that's that's probably more of a uh, yeah a financial planner question, but um, you obviously can't access anything in a self managed super fund until you hit retirement age. Uh, so any additional income or equity that you build up, um, you, you can't access that until you do hit that preservation age, as they call it, um, or retirement age. Yeah, yeah. So you could essentially get a passive income. It would just be inside of your SMSF. Yeah, yeah, you, definitely, yeah you can definitely get it. You just can't touch it until you turn 65 or, or 75 or, or whatever the new retirement age is these days. <laughs> yeah, it keeps going up. Every few years yeah. it shifts. They shift the goalpost. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Definitely, yeah. So that's really interesting to, I guess, to learn more about um, getting the pre-approval as well. Um and I generally find the way I like to invest is get a property, then get the loan, because then I know which banks I need to go through to get the valuations and everything else like that working, because it is a bit tricky sometimes when you're buying brand new investment properties. Yep, exactly right. Yeah, the, the only thing about that as well is that um, if, if someone is a first-time investor and they're accessing equity from, say, their principal place of residence, then we really like to make sure that we've got the valuations on those properties locked away so we know exactly how much equity they can pull out and how much they can put towards a property, because often clients have an expectation about what their property is worth and then the bank has a completely different expectation of that valuation. That's a different idea, right? <laughs> so it's, it's really important to, to have that sort of conversation up front and, and we've got so many different reporting tools that we can use for, for valuations, which you've already seen, Christina. Um, and so we adopt that to, I guess, make that process as fast and seamless as possible. 
it's pretty amazing. And, uh, yeah, look, David is really good at getting high valuations. So that's one of your superpowers, I think, and it, it's yes, good to have it superpower. Yeah, we've had some good outcomes so far with, uh, with clients that thought they were maxed out from an equity point of view and we've suddenly turned around and, and given them another two or 250000 worth of equity based on their current portfolio. So it's helped them go for, you know, properties three, four and five much faster than they thought they were going to be able to achieve it. Oh, 100%. I, I love getting amazing results. So this is from Nico here. If you've got about 40k equity but had to do LMI for the original loan, will the bank slash banks allow you to borrow again quickly if you've refinanced the existing mortgage or do you need a certain amount in your offset? I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I, th I think so. So I think you're saying that if you've got a little bit of equity that you've built up from a house you've recently purchased or recently refinanced, um, are you able to access any um, increase in value even if you've only had the loan for a short period of time? Yeah, certainly you can. Um, it all depends on what the valuation of the property is by the particular bank. Um, ideally, if you've already paid mortgage insurance on a loan recently, we would go back to that existing lender and see if we could get a better valuation to access that equity. Because if you do refinance again and you're still in mortgage insurance territory, you actually have to pay mortgage mortgage insurance all over again. And uh, that's a waste of money. I, I hate paying mortgage insurance if, if we can avoid it. Um, and paying the same mortgage insurance twice is a bit of a cardinal sin. So ideally, we go back to the existing lender and see what they can do. Um, and if it's a question of you know, not quite having that right valuation yet, well, maybe we just wait another two or three months and wait for the, the valuation system to catch up to actual um, market value. Yeah, and that's a really good point. What I tend to find is that most banks and the valuers that they send out, they tend to be anywhere from 6 to 12 months behind actual market sales, which is crazy because market sales are going like bang, they keep skyrocketing. Yeah. So there's plenty of comparables out there, but um, especially the big banks like um, CBA, NAB, NAB tend to be um, on the much lower side of giving, you know, true valuations. Yeah, we, we certainly find that the major banks are fantastic for established property um, because there's a lot more data, as you said, around, you know, comparable sales and, and, and recent values. But for newer properties, yeah, we often find the big banks just don't, aren't up to speed um, with where the true value of the market is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll touch on that a little bit later in today's session because I'm sort yeah. of jumping ahead no, 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 yeah. of what we want to talk about. But um, I hope that answers your question, Nick. So there we go. So does having an interest-only loan help me borrow more as monthly repayments are lower compared to principal and interest repayments? Good question. Very good question. Uh, the answer is actually the other way around. If you've got interest-only loans, it's actually, it limits your borrowing capacity by a little bit more. And, and this ties back down to what I mentioned before about um, if you've got interest only for five years, then pay the rest of that debt over a shorter period of time. And the banks don't take interest only into account. So they'll assess your current mortgages over a shorter period of time, which reduces the amount of money you can borrow. Now, the one, uh, the one sort of outlier with this is there is one particular non-bank lender that we like to use sometimes, and they will accept your actual repayments of your existing mortgages for serviceability. 
So if you're paying $1,000 a month interest only, they'll use $1,000 a month in their servicing calculator, whereas every other bank or lender might take $2,000 a month or $2,500 a month. So if you think about that variation, it's a huge positive in terms of your ability to borrow more money. Yeah, okay, great, fantastic. We've had a really good point. I wonder if this is by one of our members. They've said if it's an investment property, the LMI tax deduction... Um, so you don't pay the tenant and the taxman does. Yep, that's true. So with our strategy, um, we're getting the tenant and the taxman to pay your LMI. Yep. And it's never a black and white thing where, okay, yes, you should pay LMI to get into the market and grow your portfolio or, yep. you know, waiting. And because the time that you do wait, and if you have to wait potentially another two years, the market's already gone up 50 grand by then. So yep. you're missing out on that potential equity. Yep. So from a perspective, of, I guess, of getting into the market, growing, getting more property, as long as you're using a cash flow calculator and looking at the numbers and assessing it logically, if your tenant and your taxman are essentially paying your LMI, then it's irrelevant whether you pay LMI or not, would you say? Correct. And, and LMI is a tax deduction over a five-year period. So if you pay 5000 in mortgage insurance, you deduct it at $1,000 a year. Um, so in theory, the mortgage insurance, based on your, depending on what your taxable income is, is obviously significantly less than what you pay. Um, I think a lot of people have traditionally seen mortgage insurance as a bad thing. Um, but, you know, if you, ask, if you ask someone 12 months ago if they could buy into a property and pay $10,000 mortgage insurance um, in today's market, I think they jump on that opportunity every day of the week because they might have saved another ten dollars or $20,000, but the property is going to cost them another 100000 to get into. So, you know, mortgage insurance is not an enemy. Sometimes it's a necessary fee to help you grow that portfolio. Um, and as I like to say, you know, $5,000 in mortgage insurance is absolutely nothing in the context of building a growth portfolio long term. Oh, 100%. It's a drop in the ocean compared yeah. to the money that you're going to make in the property market with your yeah. properties going up over the next, you know, several years. Yeah. And I've paid, I've paid mortgage insurance in the past um, and it's been a fantastic decision because it helped us buy into a property that we wanted at the time and that property has now gone up 50, 60% um, from when we, bought, when we bought it. So if we didn't, have, if we didn't um, do the mortgage insurance, we wouldn't have been able to buy the property. Yeah, wow. So that just goes to show that mortgage insurance is essentially like pocket change now compared to the money you have made on that property, yeah. right? Right. And but but it was it was about twenty thousand dollars in mortgage insurance at the time, so it wasn't wow. a small amount of That's money. Substantial for mortgage insurance. Yeah, but we on the higher end. But as we said, we've we've made thirty times that in equity in the last six years, so it's the best money I've ever spent. Hey, that's a no-brainer to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So thank you, David and Christina. Some great nuggets learnt tonight. Amazing. Well, thank you for thank tuning you. in. Oh, we're so glad to have you here. Awesome. So now I want to talk a bit about, I guess, low doc versus full doc. What's appropriate for what scenario? And when would you use a, a low doc? versus full doc in what scenarios? Sure. So, I mean, a, a full documentation loan is, is probably the most traditional form of lending and 95% of people will probably adopt this approach. So your standard PAYG earner with pay slips or someone who's self-employed that's got many years of financials and tax returns that they can show a bank. So obviously the, the ideal scenario is that we can use a full doc approach because 
the rates are cheaper and the amount of money that you can borrow from a, a leverage point of view is higher. But, but not everyone's in that position. So um, for people, predominantly business owners that are, that are self-employed, there are alternative ways of getting finance without having to show that full level of documentation. So there's an alternative method called LODOC, and that means you can provide a lesser form of um, income verification, but still get finance. So, you know, that might be an accountant's letter, that might be um, bad statements for the last 12 months, that might be business banking statements that show income coming in from your business, but it's not that 100% picture of, of your, your full financials of your business. So. Ideally, we try and, you know, highlight a solution where people can borrow under full dot conditions. Um, however, if they can't, then there is a solution for everyone. They might just need to put in a slightly higher deposit and they might end up paying a slightly higher interest rate to achieve the same goal. Yeah, so I know with a low doc, you can't do a 10% deposit. So that sort of pulls out... Um, those are lower deposits that people might have as an entry point into the market. So is it 20% that you need to be able to go low dock? Yeah, 20% is probably the, the absolute minimum that you'd need to put in um, and, you know, and obviously have your ability to pay stamp duty and, and other potential fees on top of that. So it may end up being closer to 25% by the time you fund a particular property. Um, but we've certainly seen a, a shift in, you know, the old low dock days compared to today's low dock days. I think, you know, people that associate low dock loans are, are thinking they're probably still paying 6 and 7% interest rates. But the reality is it's really only a, a 15, 20% uptake on what you would get by providing a, a full dock um, package. So um, there's a lot of fantastic options out there for, for every different borrower. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think um, from like the perspective of being a business owner as well, um, I generally have to look at the low doc option, um, which doesn't really phase me because if you've got the 20% deposit, uh, even though it's a slightly higher interest rate, uh, it doesn't matter because I do my cash flow calculator. I see, you know, how much my property is going to be making me per week and then let the numbers do the talking. It's really as simple as that, you know. You really have to put your investor's hat on whenever you're comparing anything. And interest rate is actually not my pivotal decision-making point when it comes to buying a property. It's really low down on the list, funny enough. And it's interesting that a lot of people really hone in and focus on, oh, I need the lowest interest rate to be able to get the best loan. But it's not quite like that at all. No, 100% agree. I think the, the biggest shift we see in what clients ask us between your, you know, I guess your, 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 one, your one property owner compared to your multi-investor is, yeah, your one property owner just wants to know what an interest rate is, whereas your investor generally doesn't care as much. They just want the best structure and the most appropriate way of building their wealth long term because, as you said, they, they realise that the interest rate is, is far from the most important thing um, when it comes to structuring your finances. Yeah, 100%. It's definitely, you know, not up there as the most important thing at all. It's a lot lower down in my hierarchy of decision-making. Yes. Um, getting a bank to lend me the money is my biggest priority and getting that property that I know is going to double in seven years is far more of a priority than paying a slightly higher interest rate. And I even found that, um, you know, the low dock and interest rates weren't even that different from the full dock. No, exactly right. And, and the other thing we haven't touched on within this is 
there's often you know people or clients that come to you that might have forgotten about a, a phone bill that they didn't pay five or ten years ago and it sort of has a slight impact on their credit file there are certainly lenders out there that will still take borrowers that have got um, credit impaired scenarios once again there's always there's a lent, there's a solution for everyone and so you may end up paying a, again a slightly higher rate or or having to restructure things in a certain way but don't let small tarnishes in your past stop you from you know building that portfolio and, and moving forward yeah absolutely that's a really good point fantastic so low dot versus full dot um yep. Definitely, you know, if you're a business owner, look at your options and if getting into the market, um, the best way to do that is potentially going low dog, then just look at your cash flow calculator. Put the interest rate in, do the numbers and make sure you're basing all of your decision making off what that cash flow calculator is saying. 100%. Beautiful. So how much would it take to get into the market if we're looking at a full dock loan? And if we're looking at um, a purchase price of potentially uh, 430000 if we're trying to get in with, um, you know, as little deposit as possible. Sure. Putting my math skills to the test here, Christina, <laughs> 430, you could have could have given me a nice round. I could have picked a nice easy, like 400. Why don't we do 450? I'm being realistic <laughs> now of the entry point into the market, which is about 430. So that's why I picked that number in particular. That's all right. Maths is my favourite subject, so it's okay. Look, um, <laughs> look, I, look. The cheapest way, or I guess the lowest deposit way to get in would be to put in around a 10% deposit, so 43000 in, in this instance. Um, yeah. And then you'd also need to be able to put in money for, for stamp duty. Now, stamp duty varies depending on the type of property that you're looking to buy as well, as, as I'm sure your members all know. So if you're buying a house and land package, uh, you only pay stamp duty on the land as opposed to the complete package whereas if you buy a townhouse or an apartment or even an established property you pay a full amount of stamp duty so we would always provision let's say five percent for stamp duty um, but that varies from state to state so minimum amount probably 15 percent um, and with that you'd end up paying mortgage insurance as well um, but so realistically you're looking at around sort of you know sixty thousand as a as a minimum contribution for something around that 430 to 440 mark um, if you've got the if you've got the equity and the ability to put in a twenty percent deposit, then you can certainly do that, um, and you won't have to pay the mortgage insurance or, or other fees. But they, that might compromise your ability to borrow for more for more properties moving forward if you if you use too much of your deposit up front. So it's really about understanding how many properties you want to get to and how much equity you've got up front, and then sort of maximizing your strategy that way. So. Right. I'd rather maybe put in two deposits at 10% than one at 20% and allow myself to get two properties rather than one. Absolutely, yep. I'm of the same opinion there. Why get one property when you can leverage and get two properties? And with that um, stamp duty, can you use the loan to pay for that so you don't need to save up that extra in your deposit? No, no unfortunately not. You've got to have that money up front. So um, there, there used to be, you know, the good old days of um, 107% loans um, back in the early 2000s where there was the ability to do that, but um, unfortunately not today. Um, but but all days are gone, guys. That's right. That's right. But, but there is one other good one. If, you, if, you're, if you're lucky enough to be part of a certain profession 
some lenders do offer, I guess, some additional carrots to bring your business there. So if you're an accountant or a lawyer or you're part of a medical profession, um, they've got certain policies out there that allow you to put in a 10% deposit and not have to pay mortgage insurance. Yeah, I just asked that, um, Gemma, can you use equity to pay the stamp duty? No. <laughs> <laughs> I literally just asked that. No, so. You can use equity. You can certainly use equity to pay stamp duty. You just um, you can't obviously um, borrow against the property you're buying to pay the stamp duty. Yep. Okay, great. Fantastic. Awesome, guys. Well, we're just about done with this session. We've got to head on over for our private chat with our inner circle there we're doing our weekly chirp so any of our members um we're going to be heading on over to the private session very shortly but uh thank you so much for coming on tonight david and sharing your wealth of knowledge it's been an amazing session we've obviously delved deep and answered some really tough questions you know principal principal versus interest only loans p i interest only variable versus fixed all that good stuff, and we're going to continue the conversation in our private group. Um, thank you so much for joining us, guys. If you'd like to know more about how you can get in touch with our Circle of Safety, just put hashtag Circle of Safety and someone from our team will reach out and tell you about the next steps. So once again, if you're watching us live, put in hashtag live. If you're catching the replay, hashtag replay. Put in hashtag circle of safety if you'd like to connect and find out more. And we'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Fantastic. Thanks, Christina. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for all our listeners around the world. If you found this podcast valuable, please share with someone that might find this useful. And please join our tribe of purpose-driven investors, increasing income and impact in our Facebook group, Positive Property. Please note, we have a multi-million dollar property portfolio and a passive income. I've become incredibly successful at investing in property. The fact of it is, however, many people may find investing in property challenging. It's not easy. It takes a lot of hard work. However, becoming educated to make an informed decision and having the right advisors gives you the tools you need to succeed. The most important part of this formula, however, is to actually take action and apply that knowledge. It is important to understand that information I share is of a general nature only and is not taking into account your unique circumstances. If you're considering investing in any asset class, you need to seek the advice of an independent professional advisor who will be able to look at your specific situation. Be sure your advisor has actually achieved the kind of results you're seeking. Many won't have, so beware. We've taken great care putting those educational resources together. We'd be surprised if you didn't find any errors or omissions. If you do, our legal team says we have to say we're not responsible for those. In fact, as with all things, even your success, we're not responsible. That responsibility always has and always will come down to you and the actions you take. We're passionate about supporting you in that process and helping you increase your ability to create wealth Live the life you desire, provide all the things you dream of for you and your family.